Well, this morning we find ourselves back in Matthew chapter 12. I would invite you to look in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. The first gospel is Matthew, and we're approaching the middle of this gospel, and right in the kind of ending of this section in chapter 12, Jesus talks about something that might be of interest to you. It's the topic of demons, demons. Um, I think that the charismatic movement, especially the hyper-charismatic movement, has made demons a topic of uh, almost something that should be what we don't think about too much or is off-putting to you know, talk about too much. I think that the charismatic movement, the abuses of demons being everywhere, uh, theology and blaming demons for everything that we should be repenting of, has made us sort of like skeptical of talking about demons. But Jesus talks about demons, and the New Testament talks about demons. The Old Testament talks about demons. We need to understand that there are demons, and they're real. And we might not be observing someone with his head spinning, and he's turning green and frothing at the mouth, where we can say, oh, look, there's a demon-possessed person. That might not be our everyday experience, but I want to assure you that a third of the angels fell with Satan, and a third of the angels is a lot of demons, because the angels that are depicted in the book of Revelation are thousands upon thousands, ten thousands upon ten thousands, meaning an uncountable number for our human mind, and so a third of that number is the demons, and demons are part of the army of Satan, where Satan is the general leading his troops. So that when James 4 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you, we're supposed to resist this army of demons that is trying to corrupt our thinking and minds. And our text is one that takes us to a place that is what lies beneath the surface. It's not seeing a demon on the outside. It's more seeing what they're doing in the invisible realm in terms of inhabitation of people's lives, in particular their bodies, but it's talking more in terms of a person's life. We need to know what to do with this. I think that we kind of naively attribute demon warfare to things that are happening in the observable realm, things that we can see. Much like in this chapter, in verse 22, where there was a demon-oppressed man, he was blind and mute. Obviously, his demon oppression was tied to his physical maladies because when Jesus healed the man, the demon was gone. That's a physical demonstration of the demonic realm. But that's sort of a, you know, one of many encounters in Jesus' ministry. Uh, You have the demoniac. That was an isolated encounter. So are these isolated encounters how much we're supposed to think about demons? Just here and there, every now and then? Or is the demonic realm and temptations, is that something that's real and, and personal and something that we need to discern and see? How do you see and care about something that's invisible? I mean, if a demon can inhabit somebody, shouldn't it be visible to us? Let me just read with that as a context our 
verses that Jesus is talking through this from. Verse 43 of Matthew 12. It says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. If you end with, if you kind of look at the ending of what Jesus says here, he's talking about something that is pervasive to the whole generation that he's talking about. So yeah, he's talking about a person He's using the idea of a person's body being a house. He's talking about a demon going in that person like a ghost in a haunted house. That unbeliever is a haunted house with a demon inside. The demon leaves. The person fixes himself up and the demon goes, oh, that's that's now a prime target for me to take my posse of seven more evil demons and inhabit this person. That's the parable. This isn't mythology. This is a parable. In other words, a story that's speaking in terms of reality that's happening in the spiritual realm. Something that's real. Well, how is this real? I think that the way to identify demons, especially on the scale of it affecting a generation, is to listen to what demons are saying. Say, what do I mean by that? If we can't see the invisible realm and we can't see demons... We need to still be able to discern them. So how do we do that? Well, the Bible says in 1 John chapter 4 to test the spirits, those that are of Antichrist. 1 Timothy chapter 4 says that demons promote doctrines of demons. Doctrines of demons. So how do you know if something is demonic? You listen to what's being said. And there are things that are being said in our culture today on a wide scale that are coming into the church that are demon doctrines, doctrines of demons, things that are spoken in the name of light, in the name of the angel of light, things that are good for you, right, that really are demonic. This is the demon teaching of moral reform. Moral reform, and that's right in our text. The person sweeps the house clean, and that is the doctrine of demons, where a person thinks they can fix themselves up for the kingdom, where they become their own God whom they are bowing down and worshiping. You say, well, how does this play out in our culture today? Well, the zeitgeist or the religion of our culture today is what I would call woke theology, wokeism. I just read... I finished um, one book, it's called uh, Christianity and Wokeness by Owen Strand, and I would recommend that book. It's a German name, so it phonetically looks like you should say Owen Strachan, just trying to tell you if you look it up, but it's Owen Strand, and he's uh, a young luminary, wrote a great book if you want to know everything there is about social justice and um, wokeism, read that book. But then another book that I read and finished um, just this week uh, I finished it this week, is Fault Lines. It's uh, by Vodi Bauckham. And it's a subtitle, The Social Justice Movement and Evangelicalism's Looming Catastrophe. 
He's calling it a fault line. He's saying that there is a religion that is splitting the church like two plates, two tectonic tectonic plates where there's a fault. It's splitting the church and it's messing people up. And you say, is wokeism really a religion? I thought it was a political agenda. Well, Vody Bauckham, uh, who is a, a trained sociologist, but also uh, a pastor and theologian, he said it's a, it has an entire body of divinity. It's a new cult with its own lexicon, the social justice movement and wokeism. Listen to what he says. He says it comes with its own cosmology, critical race theory, original sin, racism, law, anti-racism, gospel, racial reconciliation. That's their gospel. Get the races together. Martyrs, there's saints like Trayvon, Mike, George, and Breonna. Priests are oppressed minorities. Means of atonement, here it is, reparations. That's how you atone, you make reparations with no end in sight. New birth, to be born again in wokeism is, is to be woke. That's what it means to be born again. Liturgy is lament. Canon is social science. Theologians are D'Angelo. She wrote White Fragility, I read that book. Kendi. Brown, Crenshaw, Macintosh. The catechism is to say their names. There's no soteriology. Now, soteriology is the doctrine of salvation. There's no means of saving grace in wokeism. Anti-racism, listen to this, offers no salvation, only perpetual penance in effort to battle an incurable disease. This is the ideology of our age. I'm not just bringing this up to cherry pick something that's going wrong just to get your attention. I might do that in preaching, but this is pervasive and it's not going away. It's got building momentum and I just want you to be aware of it and discern it when you see people kneel, when you see people do penance, when you see people try to say the right thing and not not offend the people who are like the priest figure and play by the rules, this touchy time, this, this ceremonial month of basic wokeism, right, that's going on this weekend. These are dynamics that are corrupting our generation. They're, they're out to target the children as well. And so we need to be discerning of this evil spirit. And I think this is a doctrine of demons. Why? Why do we need to know about it? Well, because we need to protect ourselves from being led astray. Number two, we need to guard others and we need to call people out of its grasp. You have to be able to understand that a liberal leftist agenda, I'm not talking about just a Democrat, somebody who would, who's a classic liberal. I'm talking about the liberal leftist They have a strong agenda to promote a do-gooding moral reform, and it is a spirituality. It is a spirituality to be avoided and to be combated. It's undoing the accountability of God. It's undoing, even in the church, what is the accountability where the word of God says we're undone because of our sin, and the way out of our sin is to come under the moral accountability of God and to repent That's soteriology, where you are saved by grace through faith. That's salvation. Anything that takes us away from that is wrong and is antichrist. That's demon doctrine. And when you understand that the demons are behind something like that, then you understand that demonic warfare and demonic dynamic is everywhere. It is ubiquitous. It is something that is an assault I mean, Ephesians says that Christians are to daily put on the armor of God, right? Take up the shield of faith, 
breastplate of righteousness, gird your loins with uh, the, the truth, shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel, put on the helmet of salvation, wield the sword of spirit. Why? Because we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but principalities, rulers in this present darkness. There is dynamic around us. So as we live the normal Christian life, we are resisting the devil and we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, making no provision for the flesh as the armor of God as we march in this daily warfare that we're called to fight. And if I gave you anything less than this, then I think it would not be worth your time to come to church. It would not be worth your time if I didn't warn you that there is a real assault, a real enemy, and a real army of enemies that are trying to distort your thinking and, and manipulate, manipulate you away from the gospel, the gospel which is our salvation and it is our refuge and it's what we can wield to call people out from demonic inhabitation. A demon, the only way a demon can be expelled from someone where it has no return is where the gospel is clearly preached and someone is born again. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world, right? The, the, the devils go out of the person and the door is locked behind. But without the clear gospel, that devil may leave, but he still has the house key and he will return. He might have left but he'll come back to reoccupy and come back with a greater fury. And so just coming back to our sort of macro theme, uh, Matthew 12 is a series of accusations. This is accusation number seven out of a series of eight. He's been called a rebel and a hypocrite, and he, they've called Jesus a Satanist. They've called him all kinds of things. And here I'm saying they're calling him a liberal because he's correcting liberalism. Liberalism meaning left, leftist liberalism of the moral reform. Moral reform as a religion. He's correcting that and saying if you are involved in a religion of moral reform for yourself or for society to make you feel better about yourself, you are highly vulnerable to demonic inhabitation. Moral reform is antichrist. It is the religion of the Pharisees. It is the religion of the damned. All other religions are religions of moral, moral reform in contrast to the one true religion, which is by grace through faith alone gospel. It's by Jesus alone that we're saved. By grace, nothing that we can do to save ourselves. And so let's look at this. Let's unpack what lies beneath the surface of demonic temptation. It's three phases of demonic inhabitation. Point one, impure spirits promoting lifeless doctrine. Lifeless doctrine. Uh, it says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. It's a picture of uh, not a demon being cast out of a person. Jesus had cast out a demon. Um, earlier we saw that in verse 22. But here, this demon has an autonomous will. Autonomous, I say, underneath, you know, probably direction of his master. But he's making a decision, willful decision, just to leave. I'm just going to leave for whatever reason. Maybe he's bored with his host. But like a mosquito that's hungry for a new blood source, it's just buzzing out of the, uh, that person and going somewhere else. I'm bringing up mosquitoes because it's just common to man these days, right? They're out. But you just think of it. This demon is out and it's, it's 
Finding in the world nothing that's satisfying. It's, un, it's in a state of unrest. It's uneasy. It's flying around, as uh, Satan said to God in Job chapter 1, verse 7. God said, where have you been, you know, Satan, in that scene in the book of Job? And Job said, with the sons of God, with the demons, he said, we've been roaming around on the earth, going to and fro, back and forth, looking for someone. Satan is a roaring lion seeking someone to devour, 1 Peter 5, right? He's looking. The demon is looking. He's surveying a new host. He's probably bored and empty, you know, in a desert wasteland. Maybe that's where the demons like to inhabit those areas. Not sure. But buzzing around, he's known as an unclean spirit, meaning ceremonially unclean, not fit to dwell, not supposed to dwell in someone who's made in the image of God, but especially a believer. What fellowship has light with darkness, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6. What, um, what fellowship has Christ with Belial or Satan? The rhetorical answer is to that question is none. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's... It's an unclean being. It's not supposed to be in the temple of the Holy Spirit. Not at all. Not at all. So this unclean demon has left an unbeliever. And it's kind of a graphic thing to think about. This is not mythology. This is parable truth. So why does this demon leave the man? We don't know exactly. What is exposed to us is a, um, a two-realm dynamic. You have light and you have darkness. We know that man is made, of, made up of the outer man and the inner man. He's made in the image of God. He's thinking. He's, he's made to worship. And he's, he's got physicality. And then he has an inner being. And so this is literally going underneath the surface, like going under the water to see another realm of what's going on. And so you have to understand that it's something very irritating to think about that this invisible spirit is having this kind of uh, um, willpower to go in and out of someone. Just interesting to think about. Satan is the god of this world. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers. People are blind to this. They have no idea it's going on. Ephesians 6, as I mentioned before, says there are authorities all around. We're called to resist the devil. But why he leaves is left generic this picks up on um, verse 29. Do you remember the, the allusion to man being like a house? Someone can enter a strong man's house and plunder its goods. Um, but unless he first binds the strong man, he won't be able to do that. The idea is our bodies are pictured as houses that can be invaded and, and, and then the demon can leave. Where Jesus was speaking earlier, he was talking about casting a demon out, binding it, binding the strong man, like binding a demon and throwing it out. Here, you just have a person who is stumbling around in the darkness, completely unaware of what's going on, and a demon is going into his life and out of his life. We're not just talking about the physical realm of the person. We're talking about his inner man. He's being deceived. He's being locked down by this demon, toyed with if you will. And it's a free will nature that is freewheeling and eerie. It's happening to people all the time. What are we supposed to do with this? Are we just supposed to concede to this reality that everyone's walking around and is a living haunted house? 
I think we're supposed to see through these doctrines of demons. We're supposed to address them. People seek for a sign. Do you remember in verse 38 of chapter 12? Jesus, show us a sign. Show us you're powerful. Well, hyper, I think hyper charismatic religion is one where they're saying, let's look for the signs. Let's look for things on the outside. But what I want to call us to do is to discern the things that are going on on the inside by listening to what the demons preach. Then you can diagnose it and then you can confront it with the word of God. It's discerning through truth that is when we see that demons are everywhere. It's like putting on infrared glasses with truth and you look around and you go, oh my goodness, there is so much spirit of the Antichrist going on in the world all around us and this is demonic. This is demonic. All right, point two. Point one, impure spirits, promoting lifeless doctrine. Point two, moral reform. This is the second phase of the demon inhabitation. Moral reform, creating a false security. When someone begins to try to fix themselves with moral reform, they're basically drop. instead of putting the security fence up, they're really dropping the security fence down. They're making their house super vulnerable. When you try to reform yourself, when you try to fix yourself, instead of the Lord doing that work, you decide to do it. The demon leaves occupancy, but the demon still has ownership of your life. And he's enticed by your moral reform um, to re-enter your house. You see that in verse 44. Then it says, I will return to my house. Do you see that possessive word there? My house. He still owns you from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house empty, swept and put in order. So everything is done through your externalism. You say... Am I tempted to this, really? This is what we're all tempted to do. Everybody's tempted to take charge of their life. I have sanitized this house, right? The demon leaves the person and he goes, something's different about my life. I need to fix myself up. I need to paint the barn. But if it's not the Lord Jesus and it's not true heart work, where your heart is being transformed, that you might paint the outside and the exterior of the building, but you still have a termite-infested foundation. That's what Jesus is warning people of, moral reform. And I think that sadly within the church, this wokeness movement where people are saying, we need to reconcile the races, we need to put our attention here, we need to crank up social justice to make everything right, we need to coexist with each other. I mean... Those ideas are, can be biblical ideas if they're founded on the gospel. It's true, the ethnicities, the, the nations come together in the gospel. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, barbarian, Scythian, male or female. We're all one in Christ. We're all co-equal heirs. That's true. But that has to come from the gospel of saving grace. We don't do that to save ourselves. It gets inverted, and when it's inverted, it's wrong. And you have to see through that. Remember, Satan is going to be very subtle. You say, well, how can helping the poor be a bad thing? Well, David, when he was repent, truly repenting of his sin of adultery, his sin of murder, and he was saying, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. We know that, right, from Psalm 51. But at the end of that text, he says, um, you know, a sacrifice, I would give it, but you despise that sacrifice. 
Otherwise, I would give it. What was he saying? If I try to reform myself in this moment by by giving you 10 sacrifices instead of one sacrifice, you're going to despise that. Didn't God command sacrifice? Yes, but he wants a broken and contrite heart. That's what God will not despise. You have to start with the heart. And out of the heart, the fruit of the Spirit flows. But when that gets reversed, that's demonic. So many people, even these celebrities where you're seeing these outbursts where people film people, right? One, another one happened this week. You know, people screaming and, and they're upset because they're trusting in, I think, a liberal religion, a do-gooding faith instead of um, turning to Christ. And the woke theology is a banner of diversity where they're flexing and they're going, look, look at us. We're so strong. We're so great. But back to verse 43, they're restless They are waterless. It's the false teachers. If you want to see demons, just look to the New Testament in terms of false teachers. The parallel of 2 Peter 2 to what Jesus taught is unmistakably clear. Look at 2 Peter 2 verse 17. It's describing false teachers. These are people who are inhabited by demons preaching the demon theology. So how do you find the demon? You listen to what's being said and you trace it back to the demon. 2 Peter 2, 17, these are waterless springs. These are false teachers and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boast of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves, look at this, are slaves of corruption. So the false teacher promises, hey, freedom, this is it. This is wonderful. Follow this path. And then they themselves are slaves of their own corruption because they're doing it for their own gain. For whatever comes, overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. It's the same thing that Jesus is teaching here. If you're enslaved by this false religion, it's going to make you far worse than you ever were before. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. That's like Judas Iscariot. Would have been better had he not been born, had he never been exposed to the gospel. Because if you try to turn the gospel into moral reform, it will doubly harden your heart. I'll say it that way. Be doubly hardened. It can't be moral reform. Look at verse 22. For what the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. It's because the nature has not been changed. When someone relapses, it means their nature has not been changed. Verse 44, again, it says the demon's going to return. It's going to come back. I will return to my house from which I came. It's possessing the house. Demon is making choices, which again is just super scary to think about. But the security fence is down. Why? Because the person swept the house clean. Now, I remember um, my wife and I, we were um, having a house built in... um, Little Rock, Arkansas, where we lived, and I was an associate pastor, and the house, you know, they said, it'll be done. 
It'll be done, you know. Who's ever built a house before? I had one built. You know, it'll be done by this. We have a contract. And the rains came and the floods came. No, I mean, it just took forever. But the guy who was building the houses on that street, he was building all of them. He did right by us. We needed a place to live. Our lease where we were staying inter- intermittently um, or in the interim uh, while the house was being built um, was done. And so we needed a place to stay. So he put us up in a spec home. And the spec home was clean. And he said, look, and we had little babies, right? We have little babies, brand new white carpet, and there was plastic everywhere and carpet, and we could not touch or do anything. There was not going to be a sweat ring left anywhere on this spec home because that represented his money. Now, was that home a true household, a place where we could live and be? No, it was a temporary dwelling. It was sterilized. It was clean. It's a show home. It looks great, but it was not a household compared to, you know, uh, Compare this parable to maybe a modern one where the, the first home is a meth lab. You have a meth lab with, uh, you know, dudes in it and they're cooking meth and they've got a purpose and they've got driven. They might even be having fun. They're doing illegal things. They're destroying themselves. They're perhaps promoting destruction with their business of, of sale of business. And it's horrible, but they have a purpose and they're authentic in that. And let's say somebody says, I'm overthrowing that. I'm kicking you out and I'm I'm, I'm making this meth lab into a new place. I'm cutting the grass and I'm investing and I'm cleaning the house and I'm scrubbing the place clean and it smells good and fresh. Which house was better off? I mean, it's kind of a, a terrible thought, but you have, you have people who are in their sin, but at least they're honest with it. At least they know their situation. They know they're doing wrong. Their conscience is rightly aligned with, I am a crook or I am evil. And I know the situation I'm in versus someone who goes, I'm great. I'm great. I'm, I was in negative 200. Now I'm up to zero. So I'm good, right? That's not the gospel. That's not the gospel. That's moral reform. That's where the Pharisee wants to take you to because they can control that in your life. That's demon theology. A demon wants to inhabit that house because they can fly under the radar and, and send you to hell. That's why most demonic activity is not detectable through bodily you know, dynamics. They want to fly under the radar. They want you to believe that you are just fine when you are not fine at all. We need to know about this. Someone in their hubris or pride will say, I'm a self-made man. I'm dynamic and powerful. And all the while, he is self-condemning. It's a strong work ethic. If I can clean myself up, get myself sober, get in the right program, get to the right weekend, start the new Bible reading program, put nose to the grindstone, do enough so I never go backwards, and then I'm right with God. That's not the gospel. What about Mormons? I mean, I hate to pick on the Mormons, but what about the Mormons? You know, they, they have their business. They'll come around our house. They'll try to sell us, you know, some sort of like doorbell ringer or something like that. And they're doing that so they can slip in under the radar, make a friendship with you, invite you to something and seduce you away. I mean, they look neat and tidy and cleaned up, but they are in a more dangerous position than you who's going, I don't know if I can say the gospel or I'm scared and I'm with a family member or I'm at work and what's going to happen to me. That's more authentic in terms of the Christian life and trying to figure it out what to say, what not to say and when rather than being part of a program, a system, a missions team that's for the Mormons promoting a false gospel, which I think is 
very demonic. People spend endless sums of money to reform themselves, to shoot botulism into their face, to have do cosmetic makeovers, buy cars, exotic homes, fashions, perfect teeth. All that stuff is to put on a facade, a Facebook screened facade where someone says, oh, he's so wonderful, you know, and, and it really isn't because we know we're all fallen in a fallen world. And the more counseling I do, the more I realize that really it is all a facade if you're trusting in that. It's no problem joining a gym and doing good stuff, but you can't trust in that stuff. It's got to be the gospel. So what, what does this look like? Well, let's go to um, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. I know I've read this a lot before, but I think this is so potently applicable to what I'm talking about. Luke 18, verse 9. It says, he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves. Listen to that. He's wanting to break that. They were trusting in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. And this is what he prayed. I mean, it's just classic pride. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Just, I mean, dripping sincerity. I thank you that I'm separate from those people. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And this is what I do. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. One is enslaved to his own self, worshiping himself. And the other who's sitting there going, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's free. Do you see the difference? Listen to what God says. Jesus says this. I tell you, verse 14, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Self-righteousness is a deadly sin. It's lethal, spiritually lethal. And that's the doctrine of demons. That's what's happening underneath. I think the devil leaves, the demon leaves, the unclean spirit leaves to provoke the person to do moral reform. So they think they're better off and they really aren't. They become like the devil who said in his heart, Isaiah 14, 13, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. This is moralism. It's basically saying you're better than other people. It's a control to betterment. What qualifies you to be holy is that God justifies you, not you justify you. The justification of grace comes from the outside grace of God, not the inside grace of God. There's no grace in our sin-sick souls. We're dead. Grace comes from the outside, and we're, we're counted righteous in God's eyes, and he quickens our spirit by the Holy Spirit, and we're born again by the grace of God. Not anything we do. And then as believers, we in desperation fall before the feet of Jesus and we say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. We say, throughout our Christian life, I want to work out my salvation in fear and trembling. Why? Because I'm confident that God is both willing and working for his good pleasure in my life to make me into 
more and more like Jesus, being more and more like Jesus. It's all for his good pleasure. So how does woke doctrine play into this? Well, under the guise of social justice, people are kneeling before people to try to make themselves right with themselves. They aren't even talking about God in woke theology. You're the God in that religion. You're really bowing before someone to make yourself right with yourself before that person. You're doing penance, and it's never-ending, and you're really enslaved. Falling under narrowly prescribed rules, under the guise of false humility. The devil wants you to sweep out your life. Well, that leads us to verse 3, which is point 3. Point 1, impure spirits promoting lifeless doctrines. Point 2, moral reform creating false security. You think the security fence is up, but it's down. And then point three, extreme vulnerability going bad to worse. This is the third phase of demonic inhabitation. Things go bad to worse. Self-reform opens someone to massive vulnerability. And the demons have exponential influence. Look at verse 45 again. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. They're worse. This posse is stronger. And they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation? It's the whole generation. The single perpetrator leaves and then suddenly the person sweeping themselves up. They think they're good, but they're dead inside. They're a white sepulcher with dead men's bones inside. And then the whole gang comes to inhabit that person's life like Legion or the demoniac who had all of these demons inside. There's nothing super special about it being seven demons that are inside. Seven is just the number of completion in the Bible. It means a whole bunch of demons come into that person's life. It's one thing for someone to have one demon or to be sort of flirting with a demon theology or influenced by the world. It's another thing for someone to be given over to demonic ideology, to be bowing the knee for that. All of that is to excuse sin. Instead, we have to go for the heart. Self-reform will lead people to hell, but a broken and contrite spirit is what God desires. Again, Psalm 51, verse 16, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God, here it is, are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Brokenness. It's a true work of the heart. It's taking responsibility for sin before a holy God and truly repenting. Believers are the only ones who can do this. They're the only ones where the demon leaves and then the door is locked behind. But what does this look like? And I I want to, to be very clear in terms of what I've been learning about Christian sanctification. Because I am someone that is readily tempted to put something off, to call something out, but then leave it at zero. Leave it at the spec home level, you know, where it's sterile where the plastic's still in the furniture, where you can't relax. Uh, the Christian life is meant to be something where you pour out and then you fill back up. You have to peel, pull the splinter out and then you have to apply the salve and cover the wound. Who's ever pulled the splinter out of their toe and just leave the wound open and you forget about it and then there's a little piece of splinter still there or something there. It gets big, it gets more you know, horrible and you can't even walk around on it. 
The Christian life is about digging out and then filling up the hole and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Be not drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Put off the deeds of the flesh and then put on the armor of light. Romans 13, 12. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Listen to this description of sin. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but, so you don't walk that way, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You're just gonna run back to it if you put off in the name of moral reform and don't put on the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough to run away from the sin. You have to run to Jesus every time. Ephesians 4, put off, verse 22, put off the old self, which belongs to the former manner of life, the corrupt um, life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and be renewed in the spirits of the spirit of your minds. Put on the new self. It's a lot there. Put off falsehood, speak truth, don't be angry. Don't let the sun go down on your anger, giving, the, giving opportunity to the devil. Let the thief steal no longer, but rather let him labor, do honest work. You have to put off and you have to put on. You have to put off and you have to put on. Colossians 3, 9. Don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self and its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the creator. Sterilization is never enough. It's never enough. You need to kill the meth lab and establish the new household. Is that clear enough? You have to bulldoze one and then rebuild. And if you don't rebuild, you're not in the gospel. And I don't mean moral reform. I mean a broken and contrite heart, letting God build you as you trust him. That's progressive sanctification. That's the growth of new life. That's the joy of the gospel. That's a true redemption story. When you see that in a person's life, it's powerful. And Jesus is applying this. I'll end here. He's applying this to the whole evil generation. So also it will be with this evil generation. Do you see that? This isn't just talking about someone with one demon or seven demons. This is talking about a whole generation that falls to a false religion. What I'm saying today, the generation is falling prey to wokeism. Do-goodism, self-reform, social justice. How do you combat this? Watch this. Don't fight the demon. Fight the demon doctrine. That's If you want to write these little points out, you can. But don't fight the demon. Fight its doctrine. Capture the demon with the doctrine of truth. Capture demon doctrine with true doctrinal truth. Guard your loved ones, pull them out with truth. Pull them out with truth. Second Corinthians 10, I don't have time to get into it, but 10.5, we're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. That is spiritual warfare. It's where you, you listen for the demon doctrine and you go, that's not true. And I'm tearing it down. I'm taking it captive with the gospel. I'm taking it captive with the gospel. I've heard Vodi Bakum talk about this. I think it's spot on. He says, back in ancient warfare, you didn't have nuclear bombs. 
So when there was a fortress, you couldn't just destroy a stronghold or destroy a fortress because they didn't have artillery like that. You had to set up different battalions and, and you know, do things, starve it out, whatever. But he's saying that in the gospel, Paul is saying that you do have a nuke. You have something that can destroy a stronghold, something that can fly in the face of woke theology, something that can fly in the face of an ensnarement where somebody is ensnared in their own moral reform. Don't underestimate the demons, but please don't underestimate the gospel. We have the gospel. So we have to live it by putting off and putting on. Put off your sin and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on the armor of God. Live the normal Christian life and watch it bulldoze strongholds just by living the normal Christian life.